just asked me to, if we'd pray for him. He's getting an injection, and it's in the back, right? Yeah, uh, to hopefully soften some of the pain that he is going through in his back. So let's just lift that to the Lord. Lord, we do lift up our brother to you, and we pray for those that will be helping him, the doctors, give them wisdom and give them sturdy hands, (laughs) calm hands as they uh, put an injection in his back to try to calm down the amount of pain that he's in. So thank you that you care for him more than we ever could. Uh, You loved him enough to die for him. So we just pray that you love on him this week by giving uh, these people skillful hands to carry this work out. Thank you for that. In Christ's name. So I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Then we'll pray for God's blessing uh, as he opens the word to us this morning. Romans 8, verse 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word that we just read. Thank you. It's your words, not the words of man. All scripture is God-breathed. And so we're thankful that we can open your book and that we can consider it this morning and what you would have for us to glean from it, what we should learn from it, how it should change the way that we think and the way that we behave. So be glorified. Glorify yourself through your work in our hearts, through your word. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. So we're at the peak of the, our study in the book of Romans. When I say the peak, it's not the end. It's the peak. It's the, the tallest point in the mountain as we get to chapter 8. Uh, and, and I explained that briefly last week. We, we consider the letter to, of Paul to the Roman church and therefore to this church as well, every church throughout the ages, as a full explanation of the gospel, the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, in other words, to everyone. Uh, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not only means 
that his righteous character is revealed, but how to have a right relationship with him is revealed. And that is from faith to faith. And, and then Paul went on to share why we needed a right relationship with God is because we are all condemned as sinners, whether we're religious or non-religious, whether we're idolaters, or we believe there's a, uh, one God who should be uh, served and worshipped, but we are trusting in our own self-righteousness to make ourselves right with God. We, we are condemned, chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. And then he explained how we get the righteousness of God in chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21, and, and that is we are declared righteous by faith in Christ. Not by works, but by faith. By his blood, we are redeemed. Through his work, God's wrath towards us has been propitiated, satisfied. By his work, we are reconciled with God. Awesome. And, and so all we have to do is believe. <laughs> and, and that is the message of those two chapters, 321 through 521. And we, we get to chapter 6, and as Paul moves on to explain how God sanctifies us, sets us apart from sin, the consequence of it, and, and the power of it over our life, unto him as his possession and for his use. And that's chapters 6 through 8. And, and he, he, he explained that we have to first understand that we're dead to sin. We were dead in sin, but now we're dead to sin if we have put our faith in Christ. It no longer has a penalty that it can uh, bring upon us, and it has no power to have dominion over us as it did before. Why? Because we're united in Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we're alive to God instead of dead to sin, or dead in sin. And consequently, we can become slaves of righteousness rather than what we always were, slaves of sin. And we don't have to submit to sin's temptations anymore. It has no right to rule over us. And so we're encouraged not to, not to let it reign in our mortal bodies. And then in chapter 7, he says, on top of that, you're, you're dead to the law, meaning that you're dead to the penalty and power of the law. You are dead to the penalty it brings for breaking it, which is condemnation. And you are dead to the power of it ruling over your life, which was it producing in you guilt and shame. You're free from that. You are dead to the law because you are alive in Christ. Christ died to the law, its penalty and its power in our place. And consequently, we are alive in him. Hallelujah. No more living under that awful burden of being feeling like, I'm just a wretched person because I can't, I can't stop sinning. You know, and the truth is we can because what Christ has done for us. And that brings us right into chapter 8 where he's, he's talking about that we are alive in the Spirit. So we're dead to sin, dead to the law, and we're alive in the Spirit. And this whole chapter is, is about that. We started it last week and, and we only got through the first couple of verses. We're going to go through rapidly uh, the, what we read this morning, but I remind you that, that last week we were talking about walking in liberty or walking in death. That's what Paul really meant when he says, you know, you're, you, you have the law of the spirit of life or you have the law of sin and death <laughs> that is controlling you. And so you either walk in liberty or freedom and you, or you walk in death, the death kind of life that will end in eternal death. 
But for us, who have put our faith in Christ, we, we just center, center in, hunker down on that first beautiful truth that we are not condemned any longer. No more pronouncement or execution of God's wrath will ever touch us. He's pronounced us as righteous, not condemned by faith in Christ. We're not condemned. And, and that means that we are also pardoned. And that was uh, Paul referring to us being set free from the law of sin and death. We're pardoned. It no longer has the right to rule over us. And we no longer pay a consequence for breaking God's moral law or violating his moral character. Well, that brings us where we're picking it up this week. And, and that is the third thing on your insert. Christ paid the penalty. Christ paid the penalty. So in, in, in verse 3, he's, he's explaining how this freedom, this pardon works. How the, how the law of the spirit of life is gained. Notice the first word in that verse, verse 3. For, right? little English word, but it's an important word here because what it means is now I'm going to explain further why you are not condemned and how you became pardoned for your sin. Let me explain it for you more deeply so that you can rejoice in it. For God has done, he says, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So the phrase for what the law could not do, it's a reminder of what we just saw in chapter 7. right? Chapter 7, the last half of it, 14 through 25, was the great struggle. The great struggle of those who are legalists, those who are trusting that if they can just keep the law good enough, they can earn a right relationship with God. Or if you're a believer and you're a legalist, then you're still thinking, if I can just obey the law well enough, then I'll maintain a good relationship with God. That, and the truth is, he explains, as long as you're thinking in terms of, if I keep it, if I obey it, if I can do it, then you are going to be frustrated. You're going to be led to despair. You're going to be just racked with guilt and shame and you're going to end up feeling like a wretched person a wretched person verse 24 of chapter 7 you see the law demanded behavior which no one is able to perform that that is not by self-determination and and willpower you just can't the law then condemns you for your failure to keep it well that was part of the purpose of the law we saw it in seven 7 through 13, the law reveals sin, it provokes sin, and it condemns sin. That was why God gave the law, to do that. So the law itself is holy and righteous and good, Paul said in Romans chapter 7. But it was weakened by the flesh, he writes here. The law was powerless, in other words, to overcome sin because of the indwelling sin principle that is driving people to rebel against God, to rebel against his commandments. It can't overcome it. 
one author has a good summary of Paul's teaching on the two principles that he lays out here, the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death and how it relates to uh, Moses' law and the, what we have in Christ. So he writes, Moses' law has right but not might. What the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. It, it showed what was right but it couldn't produce rightness in people, right? It has right, but not might. Sin's law, the law of sin and death, has might, but not right. God didn't intend sin to have that power over us in that way. And then we, he, he writes, but the law of the spirit of life has right and might. Amen, amen. So although the law of God proclaims the righteousness of God, that is required in law, it doesn't have the power to enable us to live up to that rightness. Our flesh, our propensity to sin before we put our faith in Christ, weakened the law so that it could not empower, it could only do one thing, condemn us. So, I'm so glad this verse doesn't stop there. They didn't stop at the law condemning us and, and, and the law being weak. No, God did overcome sin. Not by the law, but by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, is how he puts it. And we should not miss the significance of the statement that God sent his own son. His own son. Get the picture of that. That is stressing the unique relationship between the Father and the Son from all eternity. Father and Son from all eternity. And God did not send one of his angels to be his messenger like he often did in the Old Testament, right? You read the Old Testament and he sends his angels and he brings warnings and he even delivered the law at times in that fashion. Rather, he sent his very own and unique son to deal with sin and its effects. Wow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He gave his only and unique son. Praise him. Also, it's important to notice how careful Paul is in his wording in this verse. It's incredibly important. So he does not say that God's son came in sinful flesh. I want you to notice that. doesn't say that. If it did say that, it would mean that the son's sinlessness would be compromised. If he came in sinful flesh, it would mean that he would have had his own sin, right? No, his human nature was preserved and protected from the fall and sinful nature of Adam by God's sovereignty in his birth. And thus, he was without sin. Likewise, he doesn't say that he was sent in the likeness of flesh. Notice that. That would be to deny the reality of the humanity of Christ. Well, the very thing that some of the early false teachers, the Gnostics, taught, that Jesus wasn't, you know, the son of the unique son of God who came, became flesh and dwelt among men. 
No, it doesn't say in the likeness of flesh. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, bearing all the weaknesses of being human. We read that in the Gospels, don't we? He was hungry, he was thirsty, he got tired, had to stop and rest. God doesn't need that kind of thing, but in his humanity he needed it. He struggled with grief and he got mad, not sinfully mad, but he got angered at what he saw in people. He grieved over the lack of faith in people. I mean, he struggled with what humanity, even perfect humanity, would struggle with, the weakness of being human. But he was forever without sin. No sin. That's why he could bear our sin. And why did God send his son that way? Well, the verse tells us he sent his son for sin. Uh, Some of your translations might have it. It might be a better translation for on account of sin. On account of sin, God sent his son. And then it says he condemned sin in the flesh. So God sent his son on account of the sinful nature of people and the propensity to choose sin over God. That is what people were born with. Likewise, he, uh, you know, it doesn't say, notice this, it does not say that he sent him for sins, plural, but for sin, singular. So what's, what's the point of that? Well, it's not strictly the multiplicity of sins that people commit, but rather the issue of the sin nature driving people to commit those sins. That's what God did in sending his son for sin, on account of sin, the sin nature, the sin issue. This is not unlike, in fact, very same meaning of what John wrote in his gospel. John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin... Not sins, but the sin of the world. Just what was read earlier by Chris in 1 John 2, verse 2, is a propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but for the sin of the whole world, right? Sin, sin, sin. Christ came to deal with sin. So this is another reference to the fact that we all stood condemned before God as sinners We're all born as sinners due to being members of Adam's fallen race. Sin nature had to be dealt with before we could be set free to live for God in his glory. As long as we had that sin nature controlling us, we could never live in a way that would bring glory and honor to God. He had to deal with that sin nature. And then sins, the sins themselves would be dealt with because of that. So, there, have, there are some who believe that because Jesus uh, lived a sinful, uh, sinless life, people were condemned. In other words, in the sense that they, would see his, they saw his perfection revealed, and that revealed their imperfection through their sin, uh, uh, not only theirs, but all people, and thus they were condemned. Like, okay, Jesus, the perfect man, you look at him, it's like, I could never be like that. That's right, you couldn't be. And so they, they, you know, they were condemned. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, and Jesus actually refers to it in in the Gospel of John in verse 13. You know, the Spirit will come, 
And, uh, you know, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe and of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. In other words, my perfect example of righteousness will no longer be before you. So, you know, that's going to be gone. And, uh, and then also that the devil himself would be, uh, was already judged uh, by the sacrifice of Christ. You know, so they, they think that this is saying that because Jesus became a man and lived without sin, therefore he condemned it. But let me ask you a question. How would that help us? How would that help us? That by his perfection we are condemned. That would only bring us to condemnation, wouldn't it? Not to deliverance, not to pardon. Now the NIV translates this phrase uh, as he condemns sin in, uh, in sinful man. Instead of condemn sin in the flesh, it, they translate condemn sin in, in sinful man, implying that God sent his son to condemn people who were sinful. But God didn't need to send his son to condemn people for their sin. They already were condemned for their sin three times over. Number one, because they were born with a sin nature, passed down from Adam through parents to children. Secondly, by virtue of that Adam's sin was imputed to their account. His one act of disobedience was imputed to all of his fallen race. And then thirdly, because people choose to sin. So God didn't need to send his son to condemn sin. They already were condemned. Rather, the meaning, I believe, of this phrase that he condemns sin in the flesh is more likely that God condemns sin, the sin nature and its effects, in the body of Christ, in the flesh of Christ. Not sinful flesh, but his his humanity in his body. Instead of being a reference to God's condemnation of the sinful nature in people, it's a reference to the condemnation of our sinful nature and our acts of, of sin in Christ, in Christ's body. You say, really? Are you sure about that? Well, listen, didn't Peter put it this way? Christ bore our sin in his body as he hung on the tree, First Peter 2.24. Or isn't that what is implied when it says in Colossians 2.13 and 14 that the record of death that stood against, or, uh, 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 stood against us was set aside because it was nailed to the cross, the cross of Christ. He bore the, the condemnation that we deserved. Or we could look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, the sin bearer, on our account that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that didn't mean that Christ became a sinner. He bore our sin any more than when it says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That doesn't mean we were made to be righteous in living. It meant we were declared righteous by virtue of Christ bore our sin and we got his righteousness. The declaration of his righteousness came to us. I think this is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All praise to the only Savior who bore the penalty of our sin. So there's no condemnation. (laughs) We are pardoned. Why? Because Christ bore the penalty for us. That brings us to number four on your insert. This is the intended result. Christians should live like Christ. Christians should live like Christ. You know, after reading chapter 6 and verse 14, we studied that a while back, but it, there, there it said that we're not under law, but under grace, right? We're not under law, but under grace. And, and there, there are people who might conclude that, well, Christians then have no relationship to the law at all. But that would be a misunderstanding of what Paul meant when he wrote that. And, and someone's like, but yeah, but that seemed to be the, the idea in chapter 7 as well. No, you're misunderstanding that if that's what you are concluding, that we have no relationship to the law. In chapter 8 and verse 4, what he, he makes clear is that the intended purpose and the result of being set free from the law of sin and death is not that we can live life as we please or that we somehow can live life with no relationship to the law. He states it this way, in order that, that's purpose and result. This is why God did what he did in Christ bearing the penalty of our sin. For this reason, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So, do you get that? God actually intends that we would live like Christ. And as the scripture reveals, he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather came to fulfill them. Matthew 5 verse 17. Therefore, shouldn't we who have believed in Christ, shouldn't we be fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law? Now, you may say something like, wait a minute. Just wait a minute. Didn't you just spend three weeks in chapter 7, you know, showing us that those who are attempting to keep the law are legalists and and, and doomed to frustration and failure. Didn't you already mention that even this morning? Are, are, are you now telling us that we must keep the law? May it never be. Meganoita. God forbid that you would think that that's what I'm telling you, or that is what Paul is saying. Let me explain what I think Paul is actually saying here by stating it both in a negative way and in a positive way. So negatively, this does not mean that we should think that our salvation, being right with God or maintaining a right relationship with God, is, is uh, you know, that we, that, that we are not condemned and not pardoned because we keep the law. It's not saying that. We have to be dead to that way of thinking. That's what he's really said in chapter 7. Stop thinking that way. Stop it! It's like you tell your kids, stop it! Like that's what God's telling us as is stop thinking that way. That'll keep you in guilt and shame, not living in victory. Now, Bill, positively, what this verse means is that God never abrogated the righteous requirement of law. 
And we should be living out what the law shows to be the character of God and what he expects and even wants or demands or desires for believers in their living. And according to Paul, that was the intended purpose in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, right? That's the intended purpose and result of Christ bearing the penalty of our sin. It wasn't as though we could live life like we wanted. No. No. We're set free to live like God wants us to. Which involves the righteous requirement of law being fulfilled in us. Now some of you may be shocked that you know I'm even saying this. Well, let me shock you a, a little bit more. Okay. Uh, what does it mean then that uh, you know we're that have the righteous requirement of law fulfilled in us? Does that mean uh, you know that we're to keep the law? Let me give you an example, just one example out of the Ten Commandments, the, the law of the Sabbath, okay? The law of the Sabbath. Are we to keep the Sabbath? Well, the, the answer to that, and, and by that I'm not referring to Saturday versus Sunday worship. I'm talking about the, the strict regulations about uh, that day. Are we to keep it? Well, the answer is yes and no. No, we don't keep the righteous I mean, the strict guidelines of the Sabbath laid out in the Old Testament. Why? Because those guidelines were written specifically for the Jewish people, and it was part of the Old Covenant, right? The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Yes, we should honor God and be keeping the righteous requirement of the Sabbath because it remains a part of the New Covenant. It remains a part of the new covenant. Now, some of you, again, you may be shocked that I would even say that. Um, but let me explain what I mean even further before you start pulling out stones and throwing them at me. We must remember, as Jesus taught himself, that the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And what is meant by that is that God made the Sabbath for the welfare, the benefit, the, the blessing of people rather than as a point of religious ritual to be strictly observed to earn or keep a right relationship with God. God himself set the example, didn't he? You see, the Sabbath existed before the Mosaic Law was given and those strict regulations were given to the children of Israel. He set the example of of Sabbath rest for people to follow when after creating the world in six days, he rested from his work in Genesis 2.2. Now, God obviously didn't need the rest, right? He doesn't grow tired or weary ever. So he didn't need the rest. What he was doing was setting an example that would be for people to receive a blessing and a benefit. One author has written on the principle of Sabbath rest, saying it this way, there are two principles to follow, that of praying and playing. Praying and playing. And what he essentially means by that is that we've been, he's suggesting that we've been so taken up by what the world thinks that we fail to be still and silent. Still and silent. We fail to look and to listen to God 
And it ends up with a refusal on our part to stop and rest and behold what is very good in the creation and in the creator. So by praying, he means that we need to stop and spend time in meditation and in prayer and, and worship to attend to God and to grow in an intimate relationship with him. And by playing, he means that we need to stop and enjoy the creation of God. And we can do that by exercising our bodies, uh, exercising our minds, by, by playing games and taking walks. We can do it in amusement and in reading and not just your Bible, other reading as well. We take in the, the colors and the shapes and, and the sounds and the smells. In other words, we have some fun. We have some fun in the creation that God put us in and fun in him. That might be a new concept for us. Fun in God? Hmm. By playing, that's what he means. And he goes on, the author went on to suggest that we often only pretend to keep the Sabbath by Sunday church going. And then we stuff the rest of our day, even that day, with extra meetings and responsibilities and concerns until it looks and feels like a German sausage. You know, stuff with every little thing. Or we end up focusing on God for only a, you know, a couple of hours and then we turn our attention to what really matters, ourselves. So, are we under the law to keep Sunday as the Sabbath? Um, No. No, we're not. Are we to be enjoying the blessing of rest by praying and playing? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should never be too busy to keep what God created for our benefit and for our blessing. Now, that's just one example. We could do that with, you know, multiple laws. Should we be keeping them? Should they be part of our lives? Yes and no. You can think through the rest of them on your own. Now that you've got kind of a framework to think about it. But let's talk for a moment uh, about what Paul actually says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, are we uh, to be fulfilling law? Are we to be keeping it? What is he really talking about? Well, when the apostle says that believers might fulfill the righteous requirement of law, he clearly does not mean that we should think that a right relationship with God or maintaining a good relationship with God is happens when we keep the law. Again, we're to be dead to that kind of thinking. Notice that Paul actually says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us rather than that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of law. Let me say that again. Pay attention to it. He says that the righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us. He does not say that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the point that you're making, uh, Pastor Spencer. Well, he writes this in the passive voice. Yeah, there you are with your grammar thing again. It's good that we have grammar because we wouldn't understand the blessing of this if we didn't understand that there's active voice, 
there's passive voice and there's middle voice in, in language. Yes, English language as well, not just Greek. So the active voice is, I do an action. The middle voice is, I do an action for myself. The passive voice is, an action is done to me. Now this is written in the passive voice. And, and, and what that is showing us is that it is being done in us by the Holy Spirit rather than us doing it to maintain a good relationship with God. He writes it in the passive voice to make it clear that we cannot do this in our own strength. That was chapter 7. How did that end? Failure, despair, and wretchedness. But rather, this is being done in us. So the difference then is between fulfilling the law and keeping the law. We're not to be keeping the law. The law is to be fulfilled in us. And that's not something that we are doing. Those who live under grace and by the spirit of life have the requirement of, or yeah, the requirement, the righteous requirement of law fulfilled in them. In them. I'm confident that God who began a good work in you will complete it. Who's doing the work? God is, right? Uh, Work out your own salvation, for it is God who is working in you, both to do and to will his good pleasure. Who's doing the work? God is. He's doing it in and through us. Paul is consistent in how he presents this idea throughout his epistles, and not in contrast to what Jesus would have taught. So this is something that God does in us through the Holy Spirit, not something that we do for God to have a right relationship with God. So he's not going back on what he said. He's making it more clear. And notice the last part of this verse, verse 4. The righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So some people have concluded that the righteous requirement uh, of the law being fulfilled in us is strictly dealing with our position in Christ, that we were united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so we're dead to sin and we're dead to the law. The law he fulfilled the law, so the law is filled in us positionally. And that is to some degree true, but that is not what Paul is saying here. And that's why the last part of this verse is important to notice. He says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this word walk, peripateo, is a word that Paul uses consistently through his letters to refer to daily living. It is a beautiful word because, you know, okay, I'm walking, right? And it implies something. Movement and progress. Movement and progress. So in my walk with God, I'm moving his direction and I'm progressively doing it better and more. He's doing it in me, of course. That's why I'm progressively doing it better and more. You know, we recognize progressive salvation, uh, sanctification means not everyone is going to be walking at the same level of, of uh, righteousness in their daily walk as, as others. I mean, some people are brand new babies. What do brand new babies do when they learn to walk? They fall a lot. 
they stumble and they fall and they need to be picked up and helped and you keep on working at it and and then they get a little bit older and you know they start to I, I want to ride a bike dad well, it's like okay dad's holding the, the bike up as they're starting to learn and then they let them go and they ride down the sidewalk a little ways and then they fall over and they come running home and ah and they've got blood on their knee because they hit the sidewalk and and then, you know, after a while, they're no longer falling off their bikes. Then they learn to drive and they bump into things. And sometimes that can be serious, sometimes not. So it's just like life, right? Spiritual growth, it's like that. And we grow from being infants to being young people to being more mature in the Lord. John writes about that in First John chapter 2. I write to you children, I write to you young People, and I write to you fathers. So there's spiritual development. We recognize all of that. But this, what he's saying is the, the righteous requirement of law being fulfilled in us, it applies to all who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Now, who is it that walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh? You're going to have to come back next week to get a more full explanation of that. In verses 5 through 11, he'll make it very clear. This and this other side of your sheet, there are two categories of people. He's going to address the issue of those who walk according to the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. So where do I, where do I draw this to a close today? I, I draw it to a close saying this. I am so glad that I'm not condemned. Are you? I am overjoyed that I have been pardoned because Jesus bore the penalty of my sin. I am so glad that what the law couldn't do, and I certainly couldn't do, weak as I was in my flesh, my fallen sinful nature, that God did, that God did it by sending his son so that he would become a man, that he would live a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice to pay for my sins. I'm overjoyed by that. And I'll tell you this, I am motivated to live like Christ. Highly motivated to live like Christ. And I know that I can't do that on my own. That would just be falling back into legalism. I know that it requires me submitting to, surrendering to the leading, the directing, the instruction, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I'm committed to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Hopefully you are too. But if you're here today, you might be faced with this question. Do I have the Spirit of God living in me? How would I know that? How would I know that? Well, you can start looking at your life. Because the Spirit shows up in our lives. You say, well, how does he show up? He shows up by fulfilling the righteous requirements of law in you. It changes the way that you think and changes your desires, your aspiration. He changes your focus. It's like, well, I don't think I've ever really thought of that. Well, then you might want to think about whether you really know God, if, whether you have a right relationship with God or whether you've been really trusting in your own self-righteousness. The Spirit of God doesn't indwell people and not produce a change in them. 
Well, that, that just sounds kind of like law. No, no, no. That's the reality of God living inside of us. So consider whether or not you truly are a believer. And if you are, then be like me. Be glad that you're not condemned, that you've been pardoned. Be thrilled that Jesus bore the penalty, that, that God has shown you that you can't do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit in order to live in a way that will bring glory to God. And then submit and surrender. Be motivated to live like Christ. He deserves much more than we give him. But that is what we should give him. A life that brings honor and glory to him. A life that is lived like him. Okay, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity that you gave Paul in his writing of it. The, the precision of it. Well, that's, that's you. you. You are precise, Lord. Uh, you were in the Old Testament, and you are in the New Testament, and you have been with us this morning, so thank you for that. Change us for uh, your sake, for your glory, for the honor of the Son of God who, who gives forgiveness of sin, who raises us from death to life through his sacrifice. Thank you for the life that you give us now and for the life that we have promised in heaven with you. All glory be to you. Lord, thank you for the food we're going to eat as well. Pray that we'll bring you glory as we share in it together. Let our fellowship be sweet to us and to you. We pray all of this in Christ's great name. Amen.